Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. One of my favorite movies is the movie Field of Dreams. I grew up loving baseball, and my dad loved baseball, and so it was one of those movies that I instantly connected with in a lot of ways. The theology of the movie is terrible. Uh, Some of the language in the movie is not good. But the point of the movie is bigger than baseball. It is about a son reconciling with his past. It's about a son coming to grips with what he's felt and what he's thought and who his dad was and what his dad was all about. And building a bridge to the past so that he could move on in the future. I was too old and too cool to go play catch with my dad anymore. I can remember when I outgrew that need, or I thought I did. I can remember those unresolved things that needed to be dealt with and needed to be said. And any of us that are honest know that there are things that need to be said, should be said, or should have been said in our relationships with our fathers. The problem is for some of us, our dads are gone and we can't fix those things anymore. We can't say those things that we should have said. Now we know we we're supposed to say. And so walls get built up and ideas begin to develop. And in the book, The Secrets That Men Keep, the author says that the number one secret that men keep is the need for their father's approval. That although men don't talk about it, it is the number one thing that drives a man to hear his father say, well done, to hear his father say, I'm proud of you, to hear his father say, I bless you, I honor you, I'm praying for you. And so what I want us to do today is I want us to look at our relationship with our Heavenly Father because some of us cannot fix what may be wrong in our relationship with our earthly father. But we need to fix our heads in the right place on our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And the first thing I want us to look at is the issues that we have to address. All of us bring some baggage from our past. We are molded by the people who raised us and influenced us and taught us or neglected us. And I want to give you some images of dads today in our culture and how they affect sometimes the image of our Heavenly Father. One is the no-nonsense dad. He's all business. Everything is just to the point. He never relaxes. He never lets down. Everything is about business. And, you know, if your idea of God is that God is all business then you will end up being hooked into a performance mode that you have to perform 
to please your heavenly Father. Another image is the always practical dad. The dad who never splurges. The dad who when you say, hey dad, how about ice cream? We can't afford that. How about this? We can't do that. The the dad who never is extravagant in any way. He's always practical. Got it all figured out to the dot, to the penny, to the decimal point. And, And if your image of God is that way, you will begin to develop an image of God that says, my God doesn't want to bless me. My God doesn't love me extravagantly. He doesn't forgive me extravagantly. He doesn't show grace toward me extravagantly. Your image of God will be that God's always going to be practical and He's not going to ever do anything that you enjoy and He's frugal to a T. The third image is the nitpicky dad. Always correcting. Never says what you do right, but always tells you what you do wrong. Always correcting, never satisfied. And and if that is your image of God, then you will think that you can't do anything to please God. That God's always picking something out in your life. The silent or the absentee dad. That can be the dad you never knew or the dad who's never at home. Or he hides behind the newspaper all the time. It never looks at you when he talks to you. He's always always hiding behind the newspaper. It's just absentee. He's there, but he's not there. He's in, but he's out. He's checked in, but he's, but he's not always there. And, 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 and if you have that image of a dad, then it may be that your image of your heavenly father is that he's way up there in a distance and I'm way down here and there's no way to bridge the gap between the two of us. The angry or the drill sergeant dad is the dad who raises his kids like it's a boot camp. And our image of our Father in heaven can be that God is always about to drop the hammer on us, that somehow if we mess up, we're going to have to do so many push-ups and run so many laps and, and, and have so much discipline that we can't afford to mess up because the drill sergeant is watching over us. The coach dad. This is the dad who pushes his kids to succeed and excel in sports, either because he wants to relive his childhood and relive his glory days, or because he wasn't and he wants his son to be, or his daughter to be. And everything in life becomes about winning and losing. And you're only good if you're a winner. And we'll begin to think that God only loves us if we're winning. And God could never love losers, or what the world says. Are losers. The wimp dad. The wimp dad is a dad who's the pushover for the mom. And we'll begin to think that God is some elderly, senile grandfather who doesn't even know what he's there for. The martyr dad who always plays poor me. Look at what's happened to me. Look at what's going on in my life. Look at, look at what I've gone through. Look at what I'm going through. And you'll begin to think that, that you've got to do something to please the martyr. The abusive dad. The abusive dad who abuses through physical abuse or sexual abuse or verbal abuse. And we'll begin to think that God is always ready to hurt us. Not ready to love us. The Bible tells us that God is a heavenly Father. And the name Father has fallen on bad times. For some people that's a good word. And we have good memories. For others, that's a dirty word. 
A study was done of Britain's women's prison system, and one-third of the women in prison in Britain do not know who their father is. They are, in effect, fatherless. Sociologists tell us that there's a direct correlation between juvenile delinquency and the absence of a loving father. This is an issue that we all deal with, and part of the problem is we begin to transfer our negative feelings about our earthly father, the things they might have done wrong in our lives, we begin to transfer that to our heavenly father, and we have negative feelings about him. Or, just like we still try to please our earthly father and hope that one day we'll say something or do something that he'll be proud of us and he'll tell us that he's proud and and that he'll bless us, we begin to try to work to earn the blessings and the pleasure of God. And you can't do enough to earn the pleasure of God. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. God loves you unconditionally, but sometimes we begin to work like we can be good enough to get God's pleasure. Now those of us who are baby boomers grew up watching Ozzie and Harriet and Nelson and Donna Reed and Andy Griffith, the ultimate single father. And we think, man, I'm going to embrace the ideal. But we don't embrace the reality. They're actors. They're reading scripts. It's a 30-minute show. They don't deal with bad breath and the bad hair in the morning. They don't deal with... The the yard's messed up. There's somebody fixing that yard because it's television. It's pretend. It's make-believe. And we grew up with this ideal image that's not really reality. That, oh, if my dad could just be like Ozzie Nelson, if my mom could have just come to the table in her prom dress to fix breakfast every morning, (laughs) oh, my life would have been wonderful. You read the story of Ricky Nelson and you'll find that he and his dad had a very tumultuous relationship, a difficult relationship, because his dad was so domineering in his life. Irma Bombeck said, she's a great theologian sometimes, when I was a little kid, a father was like a light in the refrigerator. Every house had one, but no one really knew what either of them did once the door was shut. My role as a father is to give my children acceptance and affirmation, to be an authority figure in their life, to give them a sense of security, to give them unconditional love, to give them biblical values, to show them and to teach them how a man is supposed to treat them. Those are responsibilities that I have, and and sometimes those are modeled for us, And for you, for me, sometimes they're not. Sometimes we have to learn those things. But there's another thing I want us to look at is that God the Father loves us. Now there's a chart there in your notes and we won't take time to look at it. But if you just kind of glance down that and see what we were. We were children of wrath and now we're children of light. We were foreigners and aliens and now we're members of God's household. We were sons of disobedience and now we're sons and daughters of the Father. The word Abba is used three times in the New Testament. It always refers to God, God the Father, Daddy. Jesus said to call the Father Dad. This was radical because they wouldn't even pronounce the name Jehovah. 
because it was such a sacred name. And Jesus said, I came to give you a word of intimacy so that you could understand what God is like. God is like a dad. Now, for some of you, they may be a bad image, but don't paint it with the image of this world. Paint it with what Jesus says is the ideal image. God is a father. It's a daddy word. It's a child word. It is a word of intimacy. Here's the key to the word Abba. The word Abba means that my heavenly father is approachable. I can run to him. I can come to him. I can find in him love and acceptance and intimacy. He will not abandon me. J.I. Packer says God will go out of his way to make His children feel His love for them and to know their privilege and security as members of His family. John 14, 8 says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, it's interesting that Jesus used that image because He's talking to grown men. Not small children that could have been left as orphans. He's talking to grown men who are afraid of the changes that are going to take place in their lives once Jesus is gone. And he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. God the Father is not going to abandon you. I didn't come here and invest three years of my life in you and then just to leave you on your own. God's not going to abandon you. God's not going to forsake you. Paul says in Romans 8, 15, we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 5 says, you are sons. Now it's interesting that the prefix of the Greek word for adoption is the word son. God has made us His children, His heirs, His joint heirs. And when you see those words, heirs and adoption and inheritance and joint heirs in Scripture, those are not just terms of love, those are legal terms. God has put a binding relationship on our lives. He has partnered with us. We have become a part of His family. J.I. Packer says, you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as the revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. If you want to know how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Now God loves us, but also God the Father knows what is best for us. Remember the show Father Knows Best? He always seemed to, didn't he? He always seemed to have the right thing. Well, when you've got 10 scriptwriters, you know, if I had 10 scriptwriters, I could be profound. But when you just got to make it up on, as you're going, on your own, in the crisis, in the moment, it gets a little tough to always know best. But God the Father knows best for us. And I want to give you two or three things here. First of all, God's wanting the best for us is pictured in the father of the prodigal. It is pictured in the father of the prodigal. Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 15. Now, you're very familiar with Luke 15 and the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son, the story of the prodigal son. Really, it's not the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of the father. 
Everybody knows they're prodigals. Everybody knows that there are times in our lives when we get wayward and bent out of shape and we think we know better. But this is a picture of God the Father. The son got cocky. He got arrogant. He knew better. He wanted all of his money. He didn't want to wait for his father to die. And he wanted it all right then. And the amazing thing is, the father gave it to him. Not only did he give it to him, he let him go. And the prodigal went to a far country, a distant land. Now there are prodigals living in distant lands that are still living within easy driving distance of their parents' home. You can be a prodigal and still be at home. You can be in a distant land and be miles away from where you're supposed to be in your relationship with your parents. And I want you to pick up in verse 17. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Do you realize that that father in that story knew before the son ever came back how he was going to respond? If he had been a lesser father, he'd have put the kid on probation. He said, well, you're going to have to prove that I can trust you again. You've already squandered all that money. You've blown everything. Look at you. You're a wreck. You smell like a pig. Where have you been? What have you done? Who have you been with? Who have you slept with? Where have you gone? Who have you talked to? Who are your friends? Where's my money? Look at all you've become in light of what you could have been. You're a sorry excuse for a son. He could have been stoic and just stood there and made his son grovel at his feet and say, when I think you deserve it, I'll forgive you. A lesser father could have responded by asking a lot of questions, by asking him to prove himself. But look at what this father does. He doesn't give a speech. He throws a party. A party for a prodigal who has come home. Verse 20, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion for him. Why? Because that father was looking for him. He was waiting. He was longing. He was praying. He was hungering for that son to come to his senses. There wasn't a day that went by that when somebody would come down that dusty road that that father would think, maybe it's him. Maybe he's coming home. This is a picture of God the Father. In fact, the book of Lamentations says in chapter 3 and verse 22, His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God is a compassionate God. It's also pictured in His perfection. God the Father, knowing what best is best for us, is pictured in His perfection. Now, we had these images of these TV dads, and Bill Cosby's really the last honorable, smart father we've had on television. I mean, you watch According to Jim and Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Daughter, and you can mark down one word to describe every dad on television. He's an idiot. Why? 
because there is a movement within the media of this country to wash out any influence of fathers because when you destroy a home, you destroy society. And so if we can make every dad be a moron and his three-year-old know more than he does and be sharper and smarter and quicker with the tongue than the dad is, then we can make every dad be an idiot. And our children, by the way, every time your kids are sitting in front of a television, they're watching somebody who's telling them, your father is an idiot. They're not saying that, but they are picturing that. Your father is an idiot. Your father is stupid. Your father is a moron. Your father is a klutz. Your father doesn't deserve respect. Your father makes stupid decisions. If it wasn't for your mother, your father wouldn't even know how to get up in the morning. Your father can't do anything right. And that's the picture that's being painted. But that's not God the Father. That's not God the Father. God the Father is neither overbearing or overly permissive. God the Father is balanced. He is perfect in His balance. His love comes with justice and His justice comes with love. His discipline is out of love. The way He responds to us is balance. He's a God full of grace and truth. Psalm 32 and verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God cares about what direction you take in your life as your Heavenly Father. Romans 8, 29. He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. God has one thing in mind for you as His Son, as His child. He wants you to be like Jesus. That's what He's working on in your life. But thirdly, it's pictured in His discipline. I want you to turn to Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12, it's pictured in His discipline. J.B. Phillips says, I don't think God minds hurting us, but I'm absolutely certain He will never harm us. You know, God's hurt me a few times. He didn't give me what I wanted, but He's never harmed me. God's hurt me a few times that I didn't get everything I was asking for. But He's never harmed me. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 9, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good. Underline the so that so that we may share His holiness. God's discipline is that we might share in who He is, for God is holy. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. After, after your discipline, here's what the fruit of that will be. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 11 says, My son, do not lightly regard the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. You can't read your Bible without seeing words like discipline and reprove and rebuke. And oh, by the way, scourge. Anybody know what the word scourge means? Now, it means to punish. 
by spanking. Now, some of you got so much sloppy agape, you think, I'll never spank my children. I don't ever want to spank my children. Listen, it didn't hurt you and it won't hurt them. Now, you do it not in anger. You do it measured and you do it appropriate to the issue and you don't do it angry because then you'll overreact and you'll do too much. But God's Word says we're supposed to discipline our children. You know what we do now? We can't discipline kids in school anymore. I remember going to the principal's office. I remember a board in the principal's office. And she put the Board of Education to my behind. And in fact, that's why I don't have a behind anymore because she, she put the Board of Education and she didn't mind using it. Now, what I knew when I went there was not only was I going to get it there, I was going to get it when I got home. So I was going to get it twice. I remember one time I went home and I put on every pair of underwear I had <laughs> to try to just pad a little so I could ease my pain. <laughs> Folks, there's nothing wrong with disciplining your children. And in fact, if you love your children, you will discipline them. Sometimes time out works. Sometimes you need to get a belt out of the closet and you need to pop them one time on the behind. Now, don't get mad at me. That's what God says. He scourges every son he receives. He disciplines, he punishes. Now, don't interpret that by some spanking you got by an angry earthly father. God's spankies are measured and they're right, but it's telling us that God sometimes uses forms of punishment that are not comfortable for us. Listen, if it's not costing your child anything, it's not discipline. It's just not discipline. And when we love, we discipline. Look at verse 10. It is for our good. God does it for our good. Look at the uh, verses 5 through 11. It's a, when God disciplines us, the first thing is, it's a sign of sonship in God's love, verses 5 through 8. Secondly, it's for our good, verse 10. Thirdly, it's painful, not pleasant, verse 11. How, how, how many of you ever had a painful spanking in your life? Didn't feel good, did it? I mean, you didn't walk around and go, yes! Maybe I could get another one of those before the night's over. <laughs> it's painful, it's not pleasant. But look, it can be fruitful and productive if you'll let it. i tell you one thing. I got a few that I knew immediately after I got them. I'm never going to do that again. I didn't need Jesus to tell me anything. My dad got the point across to me. I am never going to do that again. Now, the primary word for discipline is the root word from which we get the word child, and it means to train or instruct or discipline a child. God put His children in the wilderness to discipline them, to teach them, to depend on Him. And all of us have heard these statements, just wait till your father gets home. You just wait till your father gets home. You, you've heard statements like, you're in big trouble. Or things like, after all I've done for you. Or the classic one, which we can all repeat. This is going 
to hurt me more than it hurts you. You know, I always want to say, well, Dad, give me the belt. <laughs> let, me, let me have a whack at it. <laughs> but I can tell you as a father, it does, doesn't it? It just kills you to do that. The psalmist said in Psalm 119 in verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Now one of the reasons we have a negative view, and we're about to wrap up, so don't get impatient. One of the reasons we have a negative view about discipline is because for those of us that are baby boomers, we grew up in the permissive 60s and we didn't want to do what our parents did. So there was a rebellion and a laxity and everything goes and anything goes and, and whatever you want to do, it became permissive and it would, there was no discipline. Bill Cosby with his daughter Erin had a significant problem with her when she was in her 20s. She was an alcoholic and she had become abusive and she was in drug abuse. She became totally irresponsible. I saw them on television not long ago working on a project together. But this is what Bill Cosby said when asked why he had drawn a line and distanced himself from his daughter. He said, it's going to take her hitting bottom where she's totally exhausted and at the point where she can't fight anymore. Right now we're estranged. You think you're not a good parent because you can't answer the call, but you can't let the kid use you. We love her and want her to get better, but we have to take a very firm, very tough stand that forces her to realize that no one can fix things for her. As a father, sometimes you have to discipline. As a father, sometimes I have to discipline. There are many ways in which I'm like my dad and many ways I'm not. We don't share the same DNA. We don't share the same genetic make work, make up. But I was adopted into that family and he loved me as best he knew how to love me. And, and he wanted the best for me and he prayed for me. As a father, I have to do what I think is best for my children so that they can be God's best and to guide them and to teach them and to instruct them and to mold them and make them so that they can become the best that God wants them to be. Not what I want them to be because that's irrelevant really. It's what God wants them to be. So that I can be supportive and I can stand on the sidelines and cheer when they become what God wants them to become. As a child of God, I want to make my Heavenly Father proud. I want to run the race in such a way that I finish well. I want to fight the fight that's worth fighting. I want to live a life that is godly and exemplary. And I want to stand before my Heavenly Father one day and hear Him say, Well done. I don't know what your relationship is like with your earthly father. The truth of the matter is you can't change it. But you can change the way you look 
at your heavenly Father. As a Father who loves you, who cares for you, and sent His Son to die for you. Nobody could love you any more than your Heavenly Father. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gett. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.